0: Hi, it's Dan here for Dusty Discs Radio, and this is the podcast Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Today I'm very honoured to have as my guest, guitarist extraordinaire Randy Hebert. Randy is best known currently as a member of the Bellamy Brothers, but is a Canadian artist who's done much more than that. In our discussion, we'll get some insights about his life in the music business, his journey, how he ended up playing with the Bellamy Brothers, as well as touring, writing, and recording. So thanks for joining me today, Randy. How are you? Thanks, Dan. I'm great. It's really nice to be with you today. Yeah, good. Well, I appreciate that. So, so you're born in Winnipeg. Are you in Winnipeg right now? I am. Okay, you're speaking to me from Winnipeg. Yet another successful musician from Winnipeg. It kind of, <laughs> I kind of laughed about that because I, I recently talked to John Anderson, and we were talking about he's a historian, uh, as yes. you well know. Yes. And uh, we were talking about how many successful artists came out of Winnipeg is there something in the water there
1: (laughs) yeah I think so I've always heard about it and uh, uh, what I've heard most from all of us you know is that you know it's those of us who didn't take the sports we kind of stayed in and just kind of practiced and wrote our faces off
0: it is disproportional when you think of it because you know it's it's a not a huge town. I mean, what what's the population in Winnipeg these days? It's under a million, I would think, right?
1: Yeah, it's I think and, currently around you know seven fifty or some something like that. It's it's been around yeah, so that yeah. for a while, yeah.
0: Yeah. So the amount of of successful musicians, like worldwide, down to the states and everywhere, is, yeah. is pretty disproportional compared to the population. I would say.
1: I would say, yeah, per capita, as they say. Yeah. It's, yeah. There's definitely something in the water, or you know, the grain belt we live on. I, I'm not sure.
0: Yeah. So you had an early influence in music. I, I read here that your mom and dad had a country band, and that you were influenced by that.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Um, right from Right from the beginning, uh, my my parents were musicians. You know, part time, okay. almost full time. But you know, my dad had a full time job at, at all times. But you know, he ran a band yeah. for about twelve, almost fourteen years, till my parents basically separated, and that's when the band broke up. Right. Uh, but uh, it huh. was from like the early mid '60s till about the mid '70s, and. I was uh, trained on, you know, country music, the way my parents played it, and uh, a box full of records, of course, and TV.
0: Yeah, right. Well, it's interesting because, well, there's more than a few stories, as you're well aware. I don't know if you ever knew the Chirco family, but they had a family band, right? Yes. uh, Corey was out here for quite a few years, played on the West coast. And I knew him when he was out here, but the family band, it gives you that, that sort of training, but it's like on the job training. Here's the game. Here's what we're doing. You just figure it out and let's go do it.
1: Uh, Pretty much. That's pretty much how it unfolded. When I think back on it.
0: You listen yeah. to the records and, and I mean, well, it's interesting. Cause I always ask people like, what was your background? What was your training? And you know, you get various things. Some people say, well, I got no musical training. I just know how to play. I just right. find the notes that sound good. And I avoid the ones that don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's
1: a good way to do it. Absolutely. So, but other people
0: had formal training, but you were, you were kind of probably in the middle or did you have a lot of, you know, sort of training uh, of, other than the practical stuff?
1: Well, other than, you know, like, uh, grade four reading and writing of you know musical notation on the recorder and then a little bit further on uh but i quickly kind of just adapted to my grandparents electric uh it was an electric organ you know that okay it was almost set up like a like a an accordion with the button base you know
0: yeah interesting
1: Right, so the, uh, and, you know there was a black and white map right there of what notes to not play and what what notes sounded good together. So yeah. I actually started on that, and then when I switched over to guitar when I was about eleven or twelve, uh, I I could really hear you know I was singing already and yeah, and my mom basically showed me the the chords you know the four or five chords, and then once I could you know change them fast enough, my dad was a fiddle player and he would pull pull out the Mm. fiddle and he wouldn't tell me the key and he wouldn't tell me the change and he would just start and I would have to keep up. And, you know, by around the 10th time around, I was getting even, (laughs) I even knew what the change was.
0: And Right. Yeah. That's, that's a good skill to have. I, I know that myself where you're trying to anticipate what the change is going to be four or five yeah. or up to the two, whatever. And then exactly. you get a, an intuitive
1: kind of sense of where it's going, right? Yes. By the setup, you you learn yeah. to hear, you know, how the setup happens, you know, you're being set yeah. up for the change. And I, I didn't know any of that at the time, of course, but you know, he was, yeah. tr- he was training my ear and uh, yeah. that totally served me. Uh, because I was actually filling in for his guitar player when I was about sixteen. Yes, uh, I learned the the Don Rich licks from the Buck Owens band, and
0: right. And that's the best training. You know, it's funny because guys have asked me for advice. And one of the things I always say to them is go and do a gig. Even if you make $50, it doesn't yeah. matter. You're being paid to do it. You got to step up. You got to up your game. Do it. Right. Yeah. And then you got to be heads up hockey. Like, like we always say, right. Totally. Keep your head up. Keep your stick on the ice. Keep your head up. You know.
1: <laughs> yeah. Listen, that's exactly right. Exactly. Right. A lot of hockey analogy yeah.
0: there, for sure. Oh, yeah, for sure. And and it was an exciting time to grow up, obviously, in the 60s and 70s. The music thing was just fantastic. But I'm oh. always curious about how people, you know, lots of people, I mean, everybody and their dog, probably back, you remember the days when every third house had some kind of garage band
1: practicing. <laughs> and totally. And oh, stuff. for sure. <laughs> Yeah, every, every neighborhood had yeah. had their own Anvil band, man. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> we were Anvil. In fact, I think we still are. I, me and my uh, original bandmates, we never broke up, man.
0: Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so the band's still actually going. You just
1: haven't done any gigs for a while. Right? Exactly. We never broke up. We, haven't seen, <laughs> we see each other once every 10 years, but <laughs> we yeah. jammed last year. Funny. Yeah. <laughs> So
0: what, but the thing is, when did you decide that you could actually make a living at it? Cause most of those kids, like we all knew, same with the hockey players, they all kind of drift off. They do other mm. things. They get into other stuff. When, when did you decide you could actually maybe make a, a living at it?
1: Well, I was, I faced that, uh, when I was actually about 16 and turning 17, uh, just circumstances of life, uh, uh, and my discovery of music and the, you know, the muse within and, you know, discovered my own inner connection And I I just felt like, uh, I I felt like I, the music was inside me and that the academic world, even though, you know, I was doing okay in that and I had some good subjects and, and that it just, I knew that it wasn't going to be my path. I I already knew at 16 and I, I made the hard choice when I was 17 to just, you know give my life to that although at the same okay. time i still had to you know take jobs in factories and yeah and all of enough, that yeah. but uh, i started my first road jobs when i was like 16 and 17 and you know like i said playing with my mom and dad's band and and then yeah. that led to a pretty much a full-time bar uh situation by the time i was 20 and yeah. incidentally in that in my teen years uh I, a guy has was recording my parents' band, and he left some tape recorders over at our house. So that was another deciding factor cool. when the the four-track ten-inch you know yeah. quarter track showed up, and the Sony Sony mastering deck yeah. showed up. And uh, that was essentially the year I I knew I was going to quit school because I started staying up all night recording.
0: <laughs> cool. Yeah, and, I had
1: one of those the the,
0: the Quadra Sync they called it, right? Oh yeah.
1: oh man yeah i didn't even have a mixer i I was just plugging directly into it and doing sound on sound and and i still have those recordings
0: oh wow isn't that cool yeah it's pretty funny so you're one of those guys i mean you know we know the people that drifted off but some people just didn't want to do anything else i was one of those guys i just didn't really want to do anything else i did other stuff obviously but i wanted the music was always my thing and i always gravitated back to my thing
1: right which yes. was
0: music right yes so.
1: yes totally and and you know i'm i we've only just met and i'm only becoming aware of your your career but obviously someone yourself has been you know caught that bug very early on and just committed
0: yeah. And I f- found a way to do it. I mean, I'm thankful because I've been on the West coast. I didn't want to tour cause I didn't like touring, but I've made a good living for 40 years on the West coast here. And, and Wonderful. you know, we do little, we pop out of town and come back into town. I just couldn't handle the, the tra- traveling and that sure. too much. You know, I mean, sure. you, you do it and lots of my friends have done it, but they pay a big price for that, which I'll, I'll ask you about later. But, um, but I wanted to ask you about your guitar influences, because you list a whole bunch off here, like, you know, of course, Chuck Berry and Glenn Campbell and Roy Clark. And uh, <laughs> I used to love watching Hee Haw and watching Roy oh, Clark. Yeah. Wasn't that guy just great? Oh, Glenn yeah. Campbell was so,
1: so. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, so, you know, <clears throat> growing up in the country, end of it, initially, you know, that's where my er- earlier pickers were, uh, in, you know, yeah. I was seeing them on TV and it wasn't until the late sixties and early seventies that we were actually getting some rock and roll concerts in, in Winnipeg television, you know, right? like yeah. uh midnight special and Don Kirshner's rock concert and all that stuff. Oh, so I watched all those. Yeah, yeah for sure. I know. And so, but up until then it was all just, you know, hee-haw and the Glenn Campbell show and Carol Burnett and, and, and
0: Tommy Hunter, course, Tommy Hunter. And
1: yeah. And, yeah. yeah. All yeah. those, you know, primetime music shows. So I, I grew up Don- Yeah. You must've watched Don Messer's Jubilee too. Of course. Yes. (laughs) Always. Watching Anne Murray before she was like a star on her own and all that.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. So it's funny because with Roy Clark, you know, some people have said to me, well, I can't play guitar. You know, my fingers are too short and stubby. And I said, have you ever watched Roy Clark
1: play? (laughs) Right. Right. Oh my goodness. Or, or call up a couple of uh, Segovia videos and check out his hands, you know?
0: Yeah. Amazing. Little, little mini sausages, but man, do they, they move pretty quick?
1: <laughs> oh my goodness. Or <laughs> yeah. or meeting Yingve Momstein, who is a giant of a man, is his hand like my my I could fit two of my hands into one of his probably. Wow. And when I think about how he plays and what he plays, it's it's just astounding.
0: Well he's he's in a league of his own. I mean I saw him one time playing with a a recording of him playing with a symphony orchestra and he was just flawless. I mean it's, I was shocked at how how good it, it was.
1: It really is nuts. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's just a,
0: so, but that's cool. Like, like one of the cool things I always say about us that, that grew up in the sixties and seventies is all the, the great influences. I mean, we'd listen to everybody from James Taylor to Led Zeppelin and everything in between Santana yeah. just all the, and Billy Gibbons. You put Billy Gibbons on your list too. And he's oh, one of my sure. top five. I just love Billy Gibbons. Totally. Yeah. So what yeah. style did you develop mostly from that? like the the country Uh, lean toward the country southern rock stuff
1: yeah well uh on the on the countryside the uh the pickers really kind of set me on fire so like i was chasing all the fast pickers that i heard right okay and uh whether it was albert lee or um excellent yeah uh i can't think of some of them right now but
0: there's uh, some great ones, though. It's because I do sort of a fake, fake picky thing, and people come up, oh, it was really good. And yeah, I say, I'm a faker. Oh, you geez. Watch yeah. Albert Lee. Yeah. <laughs> watch Albert
1: Lee play, right. <laughs> and, and, you know, while I was studying that stuff, and uh, even, I mean, just Glenn Campbell alone, um, I mean, the way that great. man could just, uh, he could tear it up and, not, and really people good. forget, you know, how monstrous. Yeah. I mean, that's how he came to town, was a guitar session guy. and
0: Right. in the Wrecking Crew. Yeah, because they said yeah. they said that they he said that they teased him after he became a star. They teased him because he was one of the session guys, right? Yeah. Just one of the musicians that got paid to play on records. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Pretty, pretty funny.
1: hilarious. Uh, yeah. So that stuff, you know, and then of course the rock, the rock stuff that mm-hmm. I was listening to. My first, you know, love was uh, the satisfaction guitar part. You know, hmm. became a Keith Richards sort of follower yeah uh so between the you know the articulated fast picking of country and the uh you know the sort of the legato chuck berry rock and roll type stuff uh and then discovering of course deep purple and black sabbath oh yeah, yeah. and uh i became you know in i i wanted to do that so i i started writing in the, in that vein pretty early on so you know our first band when we were teen, the guy the band that never broke up yet. Um, yeah. We actually made it into the Manitoba history pages, and uh, we oh, we called ourselves Ozymandias and it was you know from the Percy Shelley poem from Ozymandias and we found that in the library, and oh cool, and so we were we were a cross between Sabbath, Purple, and Uriah Heep, and and even you know even keyboard bands, which we never had a keyboard, but that never stopped us from yeah. playing the songs. And it just yeah. made me work harder on the uh, scales and stuff. And
0: oh, that's cool. No, and and that's the thing when you put the time in and you figure it out. That's that's what counts more than anything. As I, I yeah. often tell the story that I saw this guitar player one time and he just blew my mind and I had to get a lesson from him. So he yeah. said, "Well, I don't give a lot of lessons, but I'll, I'll give you one." So I went over and saw him, and the first thing he said to me was, "He said, you know, I don't really know the notes like." but up to about five frets up on the guitar. I know what the notes are. Other than that, I just play by patterns and stuff. And I'm like, "Yeah, hey, what, whatever, man. You just yeah. totally blew my mind when I yeah. watched you play. I was yeah. like, oh my God, this guy's so good. Right. So, I mean, it, it's a combination. And then we're talking about the different influences. Like you're all over the map, right? You listen to everybody and find the good and all that, and then take yeah. that recipe and put it all together for yourself. Sure. And it's what a great honor it is to be able to do that. It sounds like that's exactly <laughs> what you did.
1: It's it's amazing yeah I, I still scratch my head every day because like how this happened and uh, how how versatile and diverse you know my tastes are and my uh, my love of playing different genres. Um, so you know growing up with a guitar and a tape recorder and no boundaries, uh, I discovered yes. that I could write in all the genres I was listening to. And, uh, so my writing is always reflected, you know, this or that, I, there was never any boundaries or restrictions and whatever would, you know, I I don't censor myself, whatever comes out. I, I, these days, especially I chase and, uh, and if you have, you know, a head full of good music, you know, the music you write is probably going to come out pretty good.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's, it's an outlet that you have to, you have to experience that outlet because it's in you and you got to get it out. So. And right. I was going to ask you about your guitar too. You play a Tele most, right? Is that is that your main uh, guitar?
1: Well, it, that's an occasional axe. Actually, uh, I use that for you know special things for you know that sound that needs to happen. But my uh, main guitar has been a Stratocaster for yeah you know thirty or almost forty years.
0: Oh, cool. Yeah, that's what I use. What pickups are you use in your Strat?
1: Uh, currently. Uh, I I got a Strat Elite about four or five years ago, and it and it was based on like an anniversary Strat. So it had it has some cool mods on it. It has a humbucker, for example. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I always wanted to try that. Uh, my earlier Strat, which I still consider my my main axe, is an is an eighty eight Strat Plus that was totally okay. modded. You know, into with an EMG drop in pick guard. You know, active pickups and all that. Yeah. So I still I still use that one in the studio, and I still prefer that. It sounds better than the Elite somehow. The the EMG, it's the David Gilmore drop in pickup, man. It's just great. just crazy you know, grid. It's
0: so funny because I have two black Strats with maple necks and EMG active EMG pickups because I bought it and it had one in it and I loved it. And then yeah. Zach Wild bought the Zach Wild ones, yeah. and they sound
1: great. They sound great. They're incredible. Yeah, they're incredible. Yeah. So, so That's that. Funny that rig you know it has the mid boost but it also has the top and bottom boost too so that's the Gilmore right. uh, edition but yeah, that nice. works yeah it works great in my uh, for my amp setup and everything and i've heard other guys you know using the same config than i and i thought wow you know he sounds even better than i do <laughs> Oh, that's
0: cool. I guess a couple of clips I saw you were playing a telly. So I thought maybe being a country guy, they, you know, and I have a telly too, but I just don't sure. my strats, my main, my main units. So. Right on.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, so. yeah. Telly, uh, well, I never had a telly with a, a, a whammy on it. And, uh, so, you know, cause I, I've been, I've been, I've used the whammy practically ever since I got a Stratocaster in the oh, late seventies. Yeah. Oh, cool. And okay. so that's part of my, live whether i'm playing country or rock or anything i always have to have some tremolo around
0: okay yeah. but
1: the alternative guitars you know you pick them up for a couple tunes and and the latest work i did with uh i have a, a writing partner uh cindy ellis yeah showed up on the scene and uh that material just begged for the telly sound it's that country okay. rock
0: yeah yeah definitely i want to ask you about that too because uh i did watch some of that and she was great really cool amazing. Yeah, but um, so I wanted to ask you about your earlier acts. It's funny because you list you list a few that you played played with around Winnipeg. So I guess you get ensconced in the scene and you get it, it immersed in the the local scene and you just end up yeah. playing with a lot of different people. So you played with that band, the D Drifters. Oh, yeah. which I was I had heard about before, <laughs> but wasn't that Ukrainian music? Is that what that was?
1: It was mostly based. Yeah, it was a Ukrainian based band. Um, yeah, but but they had they had, they were unique in that they had a, a casino show band situation as, as well. So uh, not only would they do like, you know, a couple of hundred Ukrainian weddings a year, we, we would be doing casino shows with, uh, you know, changing, changing uh, four trail jumpsuits and,
0: Oh, interesting. And, you know,
1: uh, just in, in doing rock and pop, actually, they were actually a pretty versatile band. So the, when they would do the casino yeah. shows, it would be a set of country and a set of uh, I mean I used to sing Cold as Ice and Hotel California. Oh, wow. and, Interesting.
0: And then we would so the why, next, Yeah. Go ahead.
1: Yeah. Oh no, and then we would flip over into the Calamaicas and, you know, play the play the door at a Ukrainian wedding for a couple hours. Yeah.
0: And what an interesting, you know, transition there too. You Talk oh. about wide experiences. But yeah. I was curious why it was the D Drifters because there was, of course, a famous band called the Drifters. So, yeah, what did the name come from, the D Drifters?
1: I believe that's uh, Dave Roman. He was the band leader and kind of owner operator of uh, Maddox Studio, okay. where the band resided and everything. So, yeah, it, I as I recall, the story was, yeah, they they couldn't use the Drifters. Obviously, so he just got around the the or the branding, you know, by adding a D and a and a hyphen.
0: Okay, so. <laughs> I was curious about that. I thought, well, okay, that's kind of an odd, yeah, um, odd handle because it uh, conflicts with the other one. But uh, I know, uh, I, uh, yeah, I know. And then I see on here you played with Kathy Saint Germain, who of course moved out to the West Coast, and I know quite well. And oh, great! For many times over the years, but she, her dad, obviously was was quite well known in the Winnipeg area, right? Because they came from there. Yeah. So when did you play with,
1: well, she goes by Catherine now, but when did you play with her? Uh, That went, um, I was working my way, actually worked my way from the country scene and the studio scene. The studio scene kind of led me into some other, you know, great scenarios and bands. And so I was, I had, like perf- like live playing, I had started off in country, but I knew I wanted to go to pop and rock and all that. So okay. yeah. when I finished with my uh, my last country band was like in eighty I had been with the D Drifters till eighty three, okay. And then, then the H- Harvey Henry band for about a year or two, and then hooked up with Kathy. Yeah, and uh, that's and she had you know Winnipeg one of one of the hottest dance club bands around at that point so in the mid 80s we're you know playing all the dance dance clubs and what actually made okay out. she took us out to vancouver and
0: well yeah because she had uh was it station to station i can't remember hmm. the the name of the band i think that, that's what it was she was quite well known in the mid 80s she must have just yeah. came out here from winnipeg and uh, yeah. immersed herself in this vancouver scene she was really well known out here
1: yeah that sounds right yeah we she had uh we were called the rage back in winnipeg yeah. Oh, cool. And uh, yeah, so I followed Kathy, you know, like online. We, you know, I, it's funny because actually, the one of the first years I was down uh, in Florida in the Bellamy Studio watching some TV, and this 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 singing show, this entertainment show, came on, and and there was Catherine, you know, just belting yeah. it out. Yeah. And, uh, really? and I thought, wow, this girl's, you know, she's continuing, you know, to move onward and upward, and I, and we always thought she would.
0: Yeah. Well, she, and again, the family influence, right. And her dad was, was famous and she just grew up singing and, and became real good at it. And then of course she's married, married to Mike Reno. Now they live 10 minutes, 10 minutes from where I live, but um, awesome. But yeah, no, that's cool. I had to ask you about that. And then the Harlequin connection, how were you connected with
1: Harlequin? Oh, that was hilarious. Uh, It was great. We totally unexpected. um, But After after Kathy's uh, band um, and then I was seriously wanting to get into the the harder rock scene. You know that was I again. I was uh, at this other level where I this next level where I wanted you know more energy and more rock in my life. And so I formed we formed a trio with uh, a couple of guys that you know had been alumni in rock bands in Winnipeg. uh, Randy Booth for one. Hmm. was a a bass player in Lay pucks back in the gosh, the seventies and eighties. And the drummer, uh, so we formed this trio called the aviators and we played for a few months, you know, around Manitoba and we wound up getting hired to open up for how Harlequin's last show, their farewell show at the Osborne zoo in like 85 or something like that. And so we opened up for their last show and, and after they were done, George and Ralph they came over to us and they started ta- chatting us up and saying, "Well, you know, the, the band is done, but George isn't done and they're going to keep going as Harlequin. Do you, yeah. guys wanna, you guys want to you guys want to come on and, you know, do it." Oh, cool. And so we said, "Well, of course, hell yeah." Yeah. It's uh, a chance to play with. I mean, these these guys were I mean, they're, you know, all a couple of years older than me and I was always looking up to them because they had, you know, written radio hits and they well were they're recording. a great
0: great band too. great songs i love great. harlequin i got to interview george and stuff he's oh. been on my podcast so oh yeah
1: for sure yeah. so i just love george and it was just amazing to be, to become harlequin for a couple of years you know that was the yeah still a heyday basically
0: yeah Oh, that's super cool. I'm glad to hear that because I, I know that he had some issues and of course they had financial issues. He talks about all that and having to claim bankruptcy. He said the band basically died because of finances. They just got some, some bad advice and, and things went sideways, but he still wanted to keep going. So he resurrected it. So you were part of the resurrection of that band or keeping it going. Yes. Oh, cool. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Super honored, man. Amazing.
0: Yeah, no, that's cool. So you did a bunch of shows and have you kept in contact with them at all?
1: Uh, I hadn't talked to George for a few years, but, uh, just lately, actually, we have been in contact. Cool. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It was time. Yeah, he's going to
0: gonna go out and do, he's going to do another few shows next year, I think. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure nice he
0: is. Man. Yeah. No, good. And they, cause they did an album in 2008 or nine. I think it was just excellent. Like really, they got a great guitar player in that band now. It's yeah. Really just smoking. Just really impressive. So.
1: Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Excellent band. Yeah. Great well, good. Well, thanks player. for
0: sharing that. Thanks for sharing that with me. I, w- I was curious about that because I'm a big Harlequin fan. And then, uh, Idol Eyes, you listed on here too with Tad, right? Yeah. A, a friend of mine, uh, Kevin Swain lives out here and he, he co-wrote Sandra for Idol Eyes oh, oh, and wow. was involved with them quite a bit, but. Yeah. So, cool. what was your connection with uh, with Tad and Idolize?
1: Uh, well, that was hilarious too. Uh, a lot of these gigs happened just <laughs> kind of on the fly as they, these guys were coming through Winnipeg and stuff. So, yeah. um, so Tad and, and actually, incidentally, Randy Booth again, uh, friend Randy passed away in oh gosh, I think in two thousand eight. Oh, but wow. but Randy wound up playing in Idolize with um, oh, a couple other guys. I I'll think of their names. Yeah. And they were, they were, they hit some club called the Banana Club and they were down a guy. And Randy called me and said, You want to come and jam? And so yeah. I, I grabbed my guitar and a Marshall and I went down there and I sat in with them. And yeah. I only knew like one or two songs, but, but you know, when you're, when you have a good ear and you can jam in. And so yeah. they really dug it and had a good time and they off, they offered me to come out for the rest of the tour. Oh, nice. Yeah, so I worked my way up to uh, around Red Deer with the Seaweed Band, Errol Ranville, yeah. and those guys, and then uh, I hopped in a van with Tad and and Randy, and we headed east, and we we played all the way to Halifax.
0: Wow, interesting. Well, yeah. That's cool. Uh, I don't know what happened. I, I I've I didn't know him very well, but I met him a couple times. But they kind of he kind of dropped off the scene. I don't know what what happened. He just yeah. got into something else, or. Quit or something? I don't know.
1: I yeah, I, I had a I had limited contact with Tad, and and I know oh, was it fifteen within the past twenty years? I know he had put out new music and a video, hmm. and uh, he'd shared all that with me. But but like you said, yeah. Yeah, I haven't been in touch with him lately.
0: Well, you know, cause he, he was a success story because I've often said, you know, like all the guys that played the clubs, very few of those guys, you know, made the, the migration up into the recording world. Some did, but very few, yeah. you know, and, and he was one of those guys that was playing around and he was writing some songs and he, and he got some, you know, of course, uh, Tokyo Rose was, was huge. And then yeah. Sander was a, a pretty good song too. So he, he elevated himself above the club scene. So he was a success story. Really.
1: Sure. So. Sure.
0: Absolutely. Oh, well that's cool. And then uh you list on here Streetheart as well, which I guess being a Winnipeg connection, what what was your connection to uh I only met them them all once, but uh, of course um guitar player Jeff Neal, he moved yeah. just moved recently moved back to Winnipeg. So oh, yeah. He's living yeah. there. He's living there now.
1: Right, right. Well it was it was brief, you know. Um I guess it was let me see now. I had I'd originally played a, a New Year's show with Kenny and those guys in, in the early 1990s. Yeah. And when I had come back, uh, I'd, I'd come back off the road from the Bellamy Brothers uh, tour in 1999. I, I came home for a couple of years to get with the family and that. And during that period, uh, I reconnected with Kenny and again, played another New Year's with him and then wound up playing nice. several shows uh, between here and Regina and yeah and uh very cool yeah it was it, again another you know another unexpected dream you know coming true for a, a Winnipeg kid to to work well, with his idols and that.
0: Well, I'm a big fan of Kenny Shields. I, I, we did a gig with them up north one time, and, and they were really good. Like yeah. Like, top-notch. And Kenny oh, yeah. had a really, really strong work ethic. And even the bass player, they didn't have Spider at the time, but the bass player said, you know, Kenny Kenny said, everything has to be perfect. I, you know, it has to be top-notch. And it was. They they really shone as yeah. a band. Yes. So I had a lot of respect for them, as well as a, being a fan. Totally. So, totally. Kenny. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, very cool. And then, and then you were an honorary Charlie, Charlie Daniels. I saw you were just jamming with him, although you're not really in the video very much. It's mainly just him doing yeah. his song and, and playing the violin.
1: Yeah, that was, uh, again, you know, these things just kind of, you fall into these wild scenarios, but that's the only video I can find that I actually played the whole show with the Charlie Daniels band cool. the, the next day uh yeah. and i had it all on vcr you know and videotape and of course it yeah. never came back after you bore it out and uh but we were in mm. kumamoto japan for uh what is called oh. the Con- country gold festival uh okay and and their guitar player uh bruce had had a broken collarbone and he couldn't make the trip so charlie okay. was playing b- mo- more guitar and the fiddle and and at the club the night before, you were asking, "Did you know any Charlie's stuff, right? And I'd say, well, growing up in Winnipeg, you know, from 80, 1983 on, we all knew Charlie Daniels' music. and Okay. So I, I knew most of his show, and we jammed it that night. And that's the only video I, I can find right now of, of me playing yeah. with them. But the next oh, day, cool. we played the festival in front of, like, 30,000 people. and. Right. Uh, the Bellamy's were next to last and I just stayed up there and they moved my rig to the other side of the stage. And then uh, oh, Charlie's cool. show started. Yeah. it, it uh, bums me that I, I, there's a whole video of me with that, that in that show, but I, we just can't find it.
0: Well, there's gotta be a tape out there somewhere. That's like the lost tapes. I mean, that would there, be super cool to see. Eh?
1: Yeah, there has to be. And, and we think uh, like CMA, which what was country music uh, television at the time or CMT, yeah. They must have it in a vault somewhere, you know, okay. it's, it's going to yeah. be there. I just haven't known who to ask.
0: Hopefully they kept it. I know I was on a TV show when I was a teenager because I was an up and coming yeah. guy. And then I went back, I went back to find the footage and they said, oh, we erased, we yeah. r- erased all that stuff. I'm like, that's footage that is Canadian, you know, sort it's, of historical relevance. What are you, right. you erasing it? You threw it away?
1: Yeah. And they did. Yeah. Was what, shocking. What, what a mentality. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: So how did you meet and join the Bellamy brothers then? Um, That was, uh, that happened in 1990 when I actually met them, but their original steel guitar player, uh, Danny Jones left the Bellamy brothers tour to marry a Winnipeg girl and moved to Winnipeg.
0: Oh, okay.
1: And uh, so all of a sudden we had, you know, an American steel guitar player residing in Winnipeg and, he had been on their, you know, earlier hits and all that. So, and he turned out to be a sweetheart and a brother. Oh, cool. Yeah. And we we met and worked tons together and recorded tons of stuff. And he kept telling me, well, you know, if the Bellamys meet you, they're going to give you a gig. And, and I said, oh, nah, cool. no way it'll never happen. And then the Bellamys were, were big stars.
0: They were big stars by then, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mid 70s. Like,
1: yeah, because so I I met Danny in the in '87, and they were still you know the Bellamy was still riding pretty high on record deals and all that. Yeah, and uh, when they came to town in '90, they were playing at the uh, Cinnabon Downs racetrack, and uh, Howard had to go to Walmart, and Danny popped my cassette in and said, "Listen to this guy," and and then oh, cool. then they invited me over to Danny's for for dinner and. We started. We were talking publishing and all that, and I'm sitting there on the edge of my seat, wondering, you know, what the heck? And sure enough, you know, within within a couple of months, they they sent me a contract. I looked it over and I, I signed, and it was only a two year wow. deal. Yeah. Uh, but then, in the meantime, they offered me the road job, and and I agreed to that, of course, and I started in '93. Wow. And then by the time I joined the band uh none of my material had been cut or placed or anything so I got all my publishing back I I'd basically signed everything I had away to do it because I think well better to have a 50% of something you know right
0: yeah 100% of nothing is nothing yeah. <laughs> so
1: <laughs> so but uh but nothing got cut and I got it all back and uh, and then I'm now I you know I've been in the band pretty much ever since
0: yeah well, that's super
1: cool. Yeah. Well, that's been
0: a good experience for you, right? I mean, the, that brings you into the U.S. market. It brings you into the worldwide tours. It brings you into a, a sort of a different world, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was a, a big, big step up because they are a global band. Um Yeah it's uh, yeah well it's that's astounding. why I was surprised
0: at that like like Norway and Europe and Canada and and even in in the Asia and stuff too like I I, I mean I knew of the Bellamy brothers of course everybody's heard their songs and stuff but when I was sure. doing the research for this interview I was quite surprised like how worldwide and how big they actually were and are
1: yeah yeah it, it still astounds us for sure it, it, I know they're still kind of mystified too but <laughs> but it, it really had a lot to do with how they're their songs broke in the beginning you know broke onto the charts uh the first song let your love flow became was charted first in the netherlands in germany and then oh. england you know and then the states so yeah it worked its way back into the states yeah. and then subsequently you know other songs that they put out were were all well received in those markets yeah and uh then other artists started recording those songs in those markets. So yeah,
0: it just perpetuates. Well, yeah. Let your love flow is a great song. But the thing is it, it made it to number one on Billboard too, right? Right. Right. And yeah. the thing is once I mean that's like winning the lottery, really. Once <laughs> you once you get that, you're you're there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You've pretty we much uh, you're set.
0: Yeah, I would think.
1: If if you don't mess it up yourself or whatever. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, yeah. And you got to back it up with a few tunes, but it's funny because yeah. that was a crossover hit, right? Right. That was, that was, everybody heard that. I was a rock guy, basically. I wasn't a big right. country guy, but you know, that was a crossover hit, but then redneck girl and stuff. I mean, obviously everybody relates to all those songs. I mean, yeah, even though they're they're so
1: they would be listed as a country band or country rock. How, yeah. how do you get billed? Mostly country, country pop, country, country yeah. rock. That'll, those all apply, but after you know, by the by the time the eighties rolled around, the the early eighties, they were pretty much going into the country sound more than ever, right? Because and they yeah. they, they had more control as they went, you know, over their records,
0: and they right. always and, you
1: know wrote in the country vein, anyways.
0: Well, and like one guy pointed out to me, like there's there's very very little ageism in the country music world. Like if you're good and you're, and you're, you can age gracefully. I mean, Mickey Gilly just passed away and he was playing gigs up till he was 80 years old. Right.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: So, you know, they're, they're more forgiving and inviting of that. If you're chasing pop hits and stuff and you're, you're the grandpa guy, it's not, not so uh, inviting. Right. But in the country world, it's okay.
1: It's okay. Yeah. It's, it's a different sort of a family oriented mindset where, yeah. Uh, we, one of the country music cruises we did several years ago before Kenny, while Kenny Rogers was still with us and, yeah. you know, he couldn't really sing or walk anymore, mm-hmm. but it didn't seem to matter. You know, people still wanted to see him and listen to him talk and tell stories and. Yeah, no, that's, that's nice. I mean, it's,
0: yeah, it's more down home and, and less sort of judgy and, and. Yeah. You know, they they like the steak rather than the sizzle, so to speak. I guess. <laughs> sure. To, to put it. Sure. Yeah.
1: And if you know, if you slip off your you know your vocal game a little bit, you know they're very forgiving about that too. Yeah. Nice. Uh, yeah. But then the Bellamy's are fortunate in that you know they they've they learned to take care of themselves along the way, and they their voices are intact.
0: Right. And uh, yeah. So they did. They avoid? Did you guys avoid the, the partying and the rock and roll sort of t- train wreck lifestyle?
1: Uh, well, they they didn't avoid it, but <laughs> <laughs> but they learned pretty quick that you know that that they had a they had a chance to make a, a real career out of it. So they they cleaned up their act back in the in the eighties, actually.
0: Yeah, well, because
1: neat. they it w- they were already starting to see that you know they could have a, a longevity thing run here right yeah we're
0: going into 2023 here and and your schedule looks really full i looked on the the (sighs) Bellamy brothers tour schedule and it's packed
1: yeah yeah they're they're making up for lost covid time i'll tell you (laughs) there you go yeah and howard will be 77 i think in february Uh, so yeah yeah, we're all amazed at these guys. You know, they they sound as good or better than ever, and you know nice. they're booking dates. We're we're going to be back up to one hundred and forty shows a year, I think, pretty soon. Oh wow! Which yeah. is kind of the standard.
0: And you're coming up to Canada as well. I know Chris, uh, our manager, Chris Shandle of Sonic Flower Entertainment, he booked uh, the Bellamy Brothers. Are quite proud of that, and he's got some dates for you guys in Canada too. So you get to come back to Winnipeg to your hometown.
1: Yeah. Yeah
0: great and, uh, run. that'll be early and and then so are you back and forth you're living on the ranch is that right they have a ranch in uh, in Florida that's right and uh, in Darby Florida are you living there or do you go back and forth
1: yeah i mostly live down there i became a florida resident like you know 30 years ago okay but uh, you know always all my you know i have a daughter and a grandson and fr- family and friends are here in winnipeg Right and uh, keep track of everybody. And uh, I I actually spent a year at home recently b- due to my daughter's back surgery uh, about a okay. year and a half ago. Yeah. So during this, during the slower time last year, I was able to come home and uh, okay. take care of you know family business.
0: Yeah. Well, that's nice. It's nice to the, the, the family part's important too. But then yeah, when you got that kind of a touring schedule, it kind of takes over your life it's like the sports analogy again right yeah when it's hockey season man like yeah if the game's on you're there
1: that's right and when and being back at work you know means that when i'm living on the ranch I, I live there because that's where the studio is and so that's my other job i i go into the studio every day and and spend my 15 hours in there combining the bellamy work that we're doing and my own work that i'm constantly writing and recording
0: Right. And And that's another aspect of your career. Like you're an engineer producer as well, right?
1: Right. Right. Those hats. Yeah. I wear those hats. (laughs) Yeah. It's funny
0: because a lot of guys, you know, some guys are really into it and they're hunched over the console and they're asking questions and they work with producers and they learn a lot of stuff and they become one themselves. That sounds like that's the kind of guy you were. Sure. A lot of guys, a lot of guys I've known aren't that way, but you have to be wired a certain way to want to be a, an engineer and producer in the studio.
1: Yes, yes. But that I grew up kind of doing that, you know, with with the tape machines. So the recording process of of writing my material has has been a part of my life since since I was basically like fourteen or fifteen. And so it's really I you could say that it became part of my DNA. And I don't really have, I don't really do much else except, you know, sit in the, in the chair and, uh, you know, because when you're, you're your own engineer, you get to save a lot of money recording yourself, right?
0: Yes, of course. yeah. And,
1: and then uh, through all the sessions I did <laughs> and working with so many different producers of all kinds, like so many different production styles. Hmm. And uh, I I watched David Foster saying something very similar. It was like, after a certain point, you realize that, well, this guy doesn't really know anything more than I do. And I'm going to do this. And I think I'm going to like it better. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So that's kind of what happened.
0: And that's a fairly common story. You hear guys that, uh, you know, sort of walked into a studio and started sweeping the floor and then they started figuring out how does this work and you have a sensibility for it. I think, but I guess the personality is part of it because some guys, it's so tedious, like spending 15 yeah. hours a day in the studio. Some guys' eyes light up and they go, oh, "That's great." For yeah. me, that would be like a prison cell. I just, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't want to be totally. hunched totally. over a console for 15 hours. Yeah, yeah, totally right. Eh?
1: <laughs> but, but I've always had, you know, the live aspect has been so present in my life. So I've I've always been yeah. able to kind of walk in both worlds and uh, yeah, feel right. very lucky to do that you know very yeah, satisfying good for,
0: hey good good for you man it's it's good on you because it's a great skill to have and you you were able to engineer and play on on some of the bellamy's like sons of beaches here mm-hmm. and over the line and lonely <laughs> planet and and yeah. several of the bellamy's albums and
1: you co-produce some of those as well yeah yeah actually the uh the tracking we do mm-hmm. it's like i'm i'm one of those bed track guys where i i do the bed track I, I provide yeah. the bass, drums, and guitars. Uh, yeah. It's a it's a, a method I developed because I I play bass. I've played bass as long as I've played guitar, so I can okay. play all my own bass tracks. And yep. and even though I don't have a drum kit, I can I can make a drum cr- track sound like there's a human guy playing it and all that. Okay, cool. So ever since '94, I've been providing you know the band tracks, the bed tracks for the Bellamy Brothers. Uh, which that included, you know, yeah, sitting at the desk and, and recording the beds and then also recording the overdubs and the vocals as well.
0: Right. Well, that's super cool. Then they come in and do their thing and and you get the product that everybody's happy with it. I guess it's sort of a collective, there's no one producer sort of overseeing, it's a collective sort of, okay, we're happy with this.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's uh, so yeah, it's not like one producer, but you know, the Bellamy brothers themselves, they'll they let you know when they're happy and when it's done. Yeah. Uh, and then sometimes I, I don't know if, if I'm done, like if I'm done with an arrangement or a solo and I, I definitely need a, an opinion. It's like, am I done? Should I stop? Should I, <laughs> should I do this again? You know? So yeah. they save me a lot of work that way, you know, second guessing yeah. myself. Uh, well,
0: you must've seen the graphic of the skeleton hunched over the mixing <laughs> console. <laughs> yeah. One more mix, I just don't have it. Just one more, <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly right. One more take, I can do it better. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. Or I think I think Mick Jagger said that years ago. He said they always had that discussion at the end of everything, and he said at some point you just say it's, it's finished. I'm I'm going. Yeah. Because yeah. there's always another opinion so or another part or whatever. So so do yeah. You prefer to work and, with you. Go ahead.
1: Yeah. Oh no, no. Go ahead. Well, I was just
0: going to ask if you prefer to work with outside producers or, or produce it yourself or do the collective, what's your preference?
1: Um, haven't, we haven't really worked with a lot of like outside producers for, for our material, right? Okay. Since we're doing, it's all in house. Um, but we do farm out some of the overdubs, for example, like, uh, there's, you know, some of the, the A team players in Nashville, for example, and, so we always have yeah. an engineer, like a another engineer producer up there, who can give a, get, cut some steel overdubs or fiddle or whatever we need. Right, and then okay, and then over the past few years, we like we used to mix it all ourselves too. You know, we would go to a place and mix it all hands on. But but lately, that's become more remote too, where we send it up to our uh, our friend Buddy Hyatt in Nashville. And he would do, he would do the overdubs and then lately he had been doing the mixing as well. Mm. And then, and then of course today you can send stuff back and forth and say, well, you know, we need a little more hi hat or whatever.
0: Yeah. Well, the reason I asked you about that is because, you know, there's lots of famous artists, you know, Def Leppard, Brian Adams, ACDC, whatever, they go out and get a Mutt Lang or somebody say, you know, we got to bring this album up. You know, David Foster talks about that with the, with doing Chicago. Right. And he just said, you know, we're writing all the songs, all the songs you got, we're forget, we're going to write the all new ones. And then they come up with this brilliant album because you have an outside sort of breath of fresh air, high level guy that says, do this and this and this. So, so some guys like that, but it's torturous too. Right. So yeah. it's just, that's why I was asking, but it sounds like you got to compromise with getting some mixes, getting some outside players, getting some other ears on it, saying, Hey, yeah. you know, I mean,
1: yeah. And uh, you know, th- these days too, like the, the choices of the players, for example, when you, when you hire a certain guy, you, you know how he plays and, you know that you know he he writes. You know, recording musicians are basically writers. You know, they we hmm. we write these parts for the song and all that, and and those guys who are doing it all the time and you know right in the groove all the time they they tend to write they tend to play the right things and yeah they're like you know they're pr- experts at what they do. So we when we get we don't we just have conversations with them about yeah. you know the upcoming tracks and then they largely just kind of put it where we need it i love it i love it when that happens it's magical right these guys are so yeah. good and so
0: smooth and they just yeah. massage the tune in the way you need it massaged and you right. go wow your face lights up and go i like it's,
1: it yeah we get these <laughs> you know great gifts back from these guys yeah. and they, they like they just they're experts at playing around the vocal and the story and the lyric and it's yeah. just what it's all about oh well, uh, that's
0: very cool yeah
1: so the bellamy brothers you know haven't when they left the 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 big label productions, it was basically so that they could produce it themselves without their you know label interference and yeah. without uh, an overseer producer who, in the past had had steered them of course and steered them towards certain co writing you know that definitely served them well, but now in in later years you know they feel that they've been there done that and. Of course they have their own they have their own audience and their own uh, market basically yeah their, no. their market is it you know it crosses over into country and pop and a little bit of rock and stuff but it's basically their own market hmm. so they don't feel yeah. that they need any outside like um influence or suggestions to uh yeah, present yeah their- you
0: make a good you make a good point because they they've paid their dues and they can do what they want. I mean, I, and I've yeah. talked to guys that you know you sign with a record label and they assign you a producer. Yeah. So you go to the studio and the guy's there and he goes, "Okay, you do this, this, and this," and they take you in yeah. a direction that that they want. Yeah. Rather than what you want, sometimes.
1: Yeah, yeah, oh. and and so like even though you know industry standards get you know take over and the protocols are what they are, you still hear these stories of. Of you know they're like horror stories uh, about yeah. what they do to artists or what happens to them in the yeah. process of you know trying to make a record. And one recent <laughs> thing, uh, just to bring it up for a second, was a David Gilmour story about Kate Bush, hmm. and he was he was the one who brought Kate to the record comp to the record label. Okay, based on everything that she had done on her own and basically what made her her own, you know, unique thing, Kate, what made Kate Kate. And the record company agreed and they took her. And then two years later they couldn't, they didn't have an album yet. And they were coming back to Gilmore and saying, well, what's up with this girl? You sold us a you know a false bill of goods. And he unloaded on them. He completely put them in their place, saying, you know, mm-hmm. you you idiots changed the producer. You changed the you didn't let her work with the engineer she was used to working with and you've you've totally messed her up. Yeah. So once they got her back on track and they got the production on track, she came out and, you know, was still one of the best artists to ever, you know, come out. Yeah. And and
0: it's funny how that, I guess they have their idea, they're putting their money in and that's, that's my girl or that's my boy and we're going to do this. But I mean, I talked to one producer who, who, um, said that that they had a band that they were producing, but they couldn't play very well. And they said they, they got this guitar player in the studio and beat him up for three days. They said he ended up crying. Yeah. because they yeah. just kept hammering this guy. And I'm thinking, yeah. well, wait a second. Some of the music, it doesn't have to be perfect. It can be a little rough, but still be magical.
1: Yeah. Right.
0: Don't miss the forest for the trees here.
1: Right. Well, so. well this brings up the whole LA mentality in the eighties about all those hair bands. I mean, none of those guys could play yeah, and, right. and, <laughs> and they made, you know, they, and they would bring the hired guns in to record the tracks because, you know, they didn't think the band could play well enough, but, but then they'd send the band out to go play it and they were fine. Yeah. <laughs> so Guns N' Roses, you know, they were great live. Whether they, you know, let them play in yeah. the studio or not, who knows? But. Well,
0: the the wrecking crew is the famous example of that with the with Peter Tork and the monkeys going yeah. into the studio and saying, Well, we're here ready to do your album and they said it's already done. So yeah. it's all done.
1: Yeah, <laughs> right. Right. Or yes. or refer to uh Steve Lukather's discography uh from Toto. Um, yeah. There's another, there's another bunch of work that never got acknowledged. I mean, Toto was right. the band on Thriller. Right. And they never got yeah. any credit, not one credit. Amazing how they, it's just
0: work for hire, right? You get yeah. your hundred bucks or whatever they're paying you for the scale <laughs> yeah. or whatever they have to pay you and then yeah. they have a nice day. And then they go and make a bazillion dollars off of. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 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 So- Unbelievable! Yeah, so, and you're still recording your own stuff too, which is great. Like, you, I, I did watch your channel. You have a YouTube channel, and mm-hmm. you've got lots of stuff on there. I saw that that uh, studio video called "A Little," and you said it was Cindy Ellis, and boy, yeah. she's really good. Like, just well, excellent. yeah.
1: Well, thank you. I'm glad you feel that way. We're we're pretty yeah. we're knocked out by this. We uh, we started writing together uh, last July, I think. Yeah. And oh, cool. So, you know, and I, I'm on the road all the time and, and she has a, a real busy career as well. So we would, we would get together once a week if we could. And yeah. we found this chemistry uh, for writing. And, uh, and then it, the, we didn't plan for her to be singing in it either, but it just sort of worked out that way because mm. she sounded so good doing it.
0: Well, yeah. And uh, I would direct people to the song Forgiven, which is excellent. Great song. The production's really great. And her cool. voice is excellent on it so i put a double double star beside that one. i when i listened to all the songs i the the ones that jump out at me and that one is really
1: good cool thanks man yeah Yeah. we're we're blown away by that one
0: yeah man well i hope I hope you get some traction on it. I mean, it's a, it's such a weird world now. I often ask the artists, like, you know, it's, it's sort of like the wild West out there. There's so much saturation. I think one yeah. of the last stat I heard was there was 60,000 songs a day being uploaded <laughs> to Spotify, something like right, that. Some ridiculous right. number. I can't remember. I think it was 60,000, but yeah. how do you get, how do you cut through that <laughs>
1: mass of, of music? <laughs> uh, that's a <laughs> Tell really me good, the secret, Randy. That's Come a on. good question. I, we're still working on it, man. I, <laughs> I'm, uh, now I'm the old guy. I'm the old producer still trying to figure out how to have a hit song and, you know, hit video or something,
0: you know, even, even the old school guys like the ZZ tops and stuff, you know, I mean, they're just not a lot of buzz like there used to be about it. Right. So, yeah, it's
1: such, it's such a changed, changed world uh, industry that way too. Yeah. But, you know, we're. We're still out here um, wanting to hear, you know, Billy Gibbons and all that music, and yeah. So the outlets become, you know, internet based, I suppose, and and uh, the the money that used to be made from doing this is not there. Yeah, well, and okay, it's it's separated the people who who can make this for cheap, basically. Like well, like if you can do it all yourself, you can. It doesn't cost that much. It, it comes right. back down to cost. But yeah. If you're an artist that needs to use a studio and an engineer and a band, and then then you need a you know everybody needs a promotion.
0: Well, yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. How are you marketing this? Like, what are you going to do with it?
1: the The loose plan was, I mean, since we didn't have a plan and we just noticed we were getting some traction on this stuff, uh, like Cindy and I. So uh, we were just planning to write songs. So now the, the plan has evolved to making a little video for each song and of course uploading. And and we were looking at them as like singer-songwriter videos for shopping this material just to, you know, we we weren't looking for notoriety for ourselves, but we just wanted to get the material out. And so now it looks like, well, you know, we've got about five or six songs done and they're all kind of equal to, you know, what we've done. And we'll maybe put a like an album together, like a disc for for a release. But, But for now it's just, you know, friends and fans and family sharing and liking and
0: yeah well that's cool i mean and like and what you said to to your point about you know in the past with the you know we experienced a magical time in the music business in the Mm -hmm. 70s and 80s there was lots of money around and i don't think that i'm not sure if that could ever happen again but everyone's sort of adjusted let's say adjusted their expectations on what you're going to
1: get and what you're going to do right and and I think that because the process of actually writing and recording has become way more streamlined and easier for, like, you know, individuals to do. So it, it's automatically reduced the cost of, you know, actually making the the, the music or the product, whatever right. you want to call it. Yeah. And And it does leave, you know, more of your budget for the promotion and buying ads on, you know, Facebook or whatever you're going to do. Yeah. So but the returns the returns
0: are diminished right I mean super. even even with uh, like the Bellamys for example, like a lot of bands tour because they make pretty decent money touring right yeah and, and as compared to what you'd make now they would make good money off of uh, residuals and all that sort of thing but most that's yeah. the exception not the rule right, right. most yes. musicians need to go out and work.
1: yes because uh, you know they've well they've always maintained you know a real work ethic for live because they knew that's where, that money always seemed to go up not down for them
0: right yeah
1: but the diminishing returns of like royalties and publishing and that it, that was felt it was noticeable but like you said there's a, there's enough of a catalog there for enough time that it's still worth X amount of dollars. Right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, uh, but
0: again, that's the exception, not the rule. Most people aren't in that club, right? Most right, people exactly. have to just kind of make a living yeah. and then, uh, yeah, just slog yeah. it out, but that's okay too
1: that's okay yeah my catalog's still worth nothing but I intend for it to be worth something someday you know
0: well it's funny because I, I get asked sometimes you know how do you how do you maintain your success and keep working all the time and and the one thing I tell guys especially as they get older is stay hungry like yeah. be hungry be, be passionate man oh, like, yeah. as soon as you lose that you're competing against somebody who is passionate and hungry right. so yes. don't lose that you
1: know. good point very oh, good point. Yeah.
0: So it's uh, so I, I usually ask my guests, you know, looking back on your career, what would you change? Is there anything you would you would do differently, or and how it was handled? Maybe your bands, your managers, that sort of thing.
1: Uh, I guess I guess there's one thing I, I've I've always felt, and I've come up against it more than once now because you know I've returned to the Bellamy Road, you know, a few times, but each time i w- I felt I was ready and I was able to you know initiate a project and a band and, and an album and all that, but that I always put it on this back burner I always put it secondary because the opportunity of you know playing with a global band outweighed everything right so i I' I've occasionally felt that you know maybe i didn't if I would have starved maybe more for my for my own Art or writing, basically, that it would have taken longer, but I, I believe it would have, I would have gotten a at least a, a, breakthrough or a toehold or whatever. Yeah. So I'll never. I don't know if I'll ever really know that now because I mean I you know in the the later years of our lives I'm in my 60s now. So
0: yeah. At this age now, you're not yeah. going to go back out and try to chase the pop music dream. It, I mean that wouldn't yes. be realistic.
1: Right. Exactly. That's exactly yeah. where you know realistically. Uh, I think like, let's say even for like someone like Cindy and myself, I mean, we could, we could definitely go to, you know, songwriter venues and things like that. And they have festivals for all that, but it's, that's not really career stuff that's
0: Yeah. And again, that's, I I hate to poo poo that stuff, but it's so saturated. Good Lord. There's so many career writers and career songwriters and songwriting seminars. And the one thing I learned about Nashville very quickly was not having been there, but not going down there. But a lot of people think there's a pot of gold down there, but really Mm. there's a lot more people there on the dream, helping people with their dream of being a big star than there are big stars.
1: Yeah. 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 So for sure.
0: the whole industry down there.
1: And more saturated than ever. Uh, there yeah. are kids coming from all over the world to to follow, you know, to look for the holy grail of uh, the golden yeah. record and stuff, you know?
0: Yeah. And it's not, uh, it's not there for, for the vast majority. But, you know, it's it's like kids playing hockey. Like, how many of them going to make it to the NHL? Right. Almost none of them, right? Like right. one in a thousand, one in ten thousand. I mean, it's not that many. Exactly. Be a few. Everybody else has to figure their life out, so…
1: Exactly. And so, uh, uh, quite a while back, I, you know, when I was becoming educated to the realities of, uh, you know, all the levels and different strata of the music business, I, I realized that there was many levels to be successful on and many yes. levels to function on and be completely ecstatically happy.
0: Yeah. And, and that describes me too. That's exactly <laughs> where I'm at. Yeah, man. There's, there's a lot of different ways to make a living in the music business and to express yourself musically and have a good life and a smile on your face and be comfortable in your own skin and be thankful and happy. yes, yeah. that's, that's a good place to be. Absolutely. So, yep. Yeah. So what sacrifices did you make along the way? I mean, traveling and stuff, that that would have killed me because I would have lost hmm. a lot of things in my personal life. And I know a mm-hmm. lot of guys did it. And
1: I watched my friends do it. What What sacrifices did you make along the way? Um, I sacrificed my relationship, my early relationship with my daughter. Um,
0: mm, okay,
1: So it wasn't possible to have, maintain a family. And, yeah. and then once once the roadwork really started kicking in and uh, my last, I guess you could say, love relationship finally went by the wayside and it left, left me left my life wide open for what I really wanted to do. So subsequently, I I never really went back into relationships after the late 80s and basically, you know, as they say, become married to the music or whatever.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's a choice that, that some people make now, some people for them, it's worth it. And they go, Mm -hmm. you know what, this this is my life. This is what I Mm -hmm. do. And and it's just what I'm about. And I need to fit everything else around that. I mean, I think David Foster's on his fifth marriage or something now, Well, you know, he was, he was workaholic, right? I mean, he was doing Daisy chain project and 12 hour days and traveling and.
1: Yeah. So once I recognized because like, of, you know, like the hats we're talking about, like, so I, I write it, I arrange it, I program it, I record it, I sing it, I mix it, I master it, I do the whole damn thing. Wow. And you know how long that takes? Yeah. You don't realize oh, yeah. that one song, all of those steps, what, yeah. what, how much time that takes out of your life. So when I became single the final time, I realized, Okay. I'd rather be doing this than being with, any, with the wrong person, for example, because the, right. the wrong okay. person is never going to understand any of this stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's
1: so I, I wrote it off. I put it in a bag and I said, no more relationships for this guy. And, uh, and all that stuff was a distraction for what I wanted to accomplish. I don't know how David Foster even got through five marriages. I I really didn't even know that.
0: Well, I mean, he does. I read his book and he talks about his relationship with his kids and stuff. I mean, at the end of the book, you're thinking, okay, this guy was a workaholic. He was incredibly successful in one area of his life and completely deficient in every other area. And he felt (laughs) bad about it. He does say that he felt bad because his kids stuff, you know, so... I mean that's that's heartbreaking. But again, mm-hmm. then I, I typically follow that question up, was it worth it? And for some guys mm-hmm. it, it is worth it. This is what I love yeah. to do, this is what I was put on this earth to do, and I'm doing it. So
1: totally. It, yeah, it's worth it. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. because uh I recognized, you know, that that hunger in my own heart, in my own soul. And there was yeah. nothing else that would uh suffice, nothing would take that place. And then w- because I kept, you know, the, the personal life simple with, you know, there was no more relationships, I had one child, I had one daughter, which mm-hmm. I always intended to, you know, go back and, you know, repair our, our life together, you know, and address yeah. all of that. And which I did, Good. even while I was, you know, joining, uh, you know, the Bellamy Brothers and that. But in the 90s, when there was no cell phones or internet or anything. I basically felt like I left Canada and immigrated to another country and it was, you know, really hard to stay in touch with everybody, you know, buying phone yes. cards at grocery stores and calling from pay phones.
0: Yeah. You were very cut off back then. It was, it's much yeah. more open now. We FaceTime and do all yeah. kinds of stuff. You can be in touch,
1: right? Exactly. So, so, so the maintaining that and repairing that relationship with my daughter was a priority and yeah. uh but if i had had you know more kids and more wives i wouldn't have been able to get to any of that and hmm. even and then i would i know i would have a lot more regrets but but yeah. as we sit here you know i have a a super best friend relationship with my daughter and my grandson is 15 and good for it's, you it's just an incredibly tight but loving warm family yeah, good. Well, that's nice to
0: hear. And, and of course, you know, the sacrifices that we make, if, if you can be happy and comfortable in your own skin and say, you know, I'm doing my thing here that, I mean, that's a good place to be. And if you're yep. there, then, then I'm happy for you. And, and Thanks, Dan. So this year, 2023, you've got uh, lots of stuff going on, right? More recording, you're touring. There's, there's a ton of dates, like I said, on the Bellamy's uh, tour. So you'll be out with them and you'll be recording, doing some studio stuff based out yep. of Florida again.
1: Yes, Yes, we're, we're halfway through an, another Bellamy album right now. Oh, nice. Yeah, we, uh, because generally uh, nothing happens in the studio during the summer months. And then by fall, when you know, I'm getting into the studio a little more frequently, like you know from Sunday night to Wednesday or whatever, they start right. bringing new songs in. And uh, so we've got already half an album in the can. Nice. It's really Good. cool. So
0: what's the release date for that, do you think?
1: Um, I, I don't really know, but I, it'll be 23 for sure.
0: Okay. Uh, so end of, the, end of the year, later in the year?
1: Possibly even summer, um, summer, fall, you know, possibly, uh, I don't, don't know what's in the Bellamy mind right now, yeah. but ju- judging on, you know, past experience when we're sitting at this particular time and place with, uh, an album, it, it's probably be finished by the spring and they could have yeah. plans to start releasing I know there are some key songs on there that that are written in um, response to. Uh, they have done uh, a cannabis deal with with a company in the, out of Florida, and they're okay. actually a, a Canadian affiliate as well called True Leave. and uh, they become spokespersons for their states' uh, adult use, you know, marijuana. Yeah. initiative and so they're they're busy doing that and they have actually material that's going to go in hand with that and kind of promote some of that interesting okay well cool a a song called terpene dreams if you can imagine
0: (laughs) very cool very interesting
1: Yeah. yeah Yeah, good. Well,
0: it's good that they're staying active and you're staying active and and that's excellent. So, well, thanks for taking the time. I mean, this is a super interesting conversation and all the stuff that you've done. And uh, I wanted to run through your history and and get you to to sort of address some questions I had about uh, the people you played with and and how you came up and all that stuff. And I think that the listeners really like to hear that sort of stuff too. So.
1: That's awesome. I'm happy to share that.
0: Many thanks to Randy Hebert for being part of the Liner Notes podcast and sharing some insights from his perspective. More information is available online. He's got Facebook at RandmanMusic. And then he's got a YouTube channel, which which some of the songs that we spoke about. And then he's got the Bellamy Brothers course. Uh, Bellamybrothers.com has lots of information as well. So we hope you enjoyed the podcast and invite you to subscribe to it and share it on social media so others can enjoy it as well. And we also invite you to listen to Dusty Disks Radio to hear music from the Canadian artists you're hearing on this show. So until next time, I'm Dan Harris.